0: Hello and welcome to the Demystifying Media Podcast. I'm Damien Radcliffe, the Carolyn S. Chambers Professor of Journalism at the University of Oregon, and in this series we talk to leading scholars and media practitioners about their work at the leading edge of communication studies and practice. Today we're joined by Danny Parker, a PhD candidate at the School of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Danny's research examines the role communication ecologies play in the reproduction of poverty and the development of political identity. As an ethnographer, she chronicles the lived experiences of extremely impoverished rural and urban communities by living among them and documenting their everyday lives. Dani has a professional background in international education. She taught English as a second language for seven years before pursuing her PhD. She obtained her bachelor's degree in applied linguistics from Georgia State University and her master's degree in journalism and mass communication from the University of Georgia. Her work has been recognised by awards from the International Communication Association, ICA, and the Association for Education in Journalism and Mass Communication, AEJMC, and she's been published in leading peer-reviewed journals such as Mass Communication and Society. Danny, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So I want to start uh, at the beginning. We're going to talk a little bit about your research work and some of the conclusions from it. But I've already teed up a little bit about some of the things you explore. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about how you came upon this as being your area that you wanted to explore.
1: Well, honestly, I went to graduate school for media law and policy because I was really interested in academic freedom and the First Amendment but I found my way into a random qualitative methods course in the first year and it completely, you know, shifted the direction of the rest of my life, not only of my scholarship, but what I do with all of my time, especially as like an immersive participant observer.
0: So, and what was it then about that class that really kind of uh, lit that switch for you?
1: Well, I mean, there are all kinds of different ways that educators kind of set our minds on fire. And what happened is I had this professor named Lewis Friedland and he's a sociologist, but he's also a jazz musician. And I've always been good at school. Just like everybody in graduate school is very intellectually curious. And so many things speak to that curiosity, but you learn over time there, that there are only a few things that you can actually deeply speak to in terms of producing knowledge and contributing to human thought. And he taught me something really special. He was saying, you know, when you read this homework, treat it like a musical composition. You want to be able to understand it well enough to where you can play the notes without looking at the page. But then your voice comes through kind of like jazz. And all of these side thoughts that you're having, not the summary points that you write down when you take notes for class, but like the jokes and observations, stories about your own life that it makes you think about, and even sometimes your indignations, you know, that can become the base note of your own intellectual voice. And then for the first time in my education, I started using things that I understood from my own life and, and the empirical observations that I experienced as a human and not having that hat on as a scholar and it informed my work and and yeah, just completely changed the direction of, of my research and my, my career trajectory.
0: Wow, so, so having had this ro- road to Damascus experience, how did that then manifest itself in terms of w- what you did next?
1: Well, um, the project I started was actually looking at undocumented immigrants and their relationship to detention centers and legal clinics, because I was media law and policy, but that got shut down during COVID. And what happened is I wound up in a really isolated community during COVID when we were all distance learning um, to just kind of stay out of the fray. But I encountered a community that, because I had just spent that time with Louis Friedland, I realized, you know was a sociological phenomenon. And I didn't know what I had a case of, which is an expression people use in qualitative scholarship. You see something going on, but you don't know what it is. So I just started sending him emails after school was over in the summer, and like, there's something going on here. I don't know what it is, but I think it's important. and um, And that's how my study began with a rural white Appalachian, deeply impoverished community who had a completely different understanding of politics and the government in really divergent social norms and economic practices, and engaged a lot in, um, in vigilantism.
0: So these are some of the things that you saw going on. How did you then take that, that kind of observational work and parlay that into kind of academic research?
1: Well, it's interesting because, you know, we're kind of, you go through into from kind of intuition and lived experience to kind of you know, find your intellectual voice, but at the same time, there are all of these compositions and background theories and ideas that you work, you know, like just kind of floating around in the back of your mind. And I had just read Katherine Kramer's The Politics of Resentment. And because of that, you know, the frame of her ideas about rural, like, you know, working and middle class people and um, their political ideas and sentiments, because I'm a Paul Com scholar from a department that is really focused on that. I didn't know what I had a case of, so I just took political communication like a fork and tried to see if it sticks, you know. Um, And when I did that, I found that there were massive differences between these very impoverished groups. You know, the lowest level of social stratification in those rural communities, there were really big differences with the way they understood the world compared to the people who are being published about that were part of the Tea Party movement and, you know, the growth of populist politics in rural communities, this was a completely different phenomenon. And I realized that because when I tried to write my first papers, I went to look for things about poverty, um, like very low income populations, and there was nothing there. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like these there are no studies on these people and even news coverage of poverty. Really, I got all of my stuff out of the UK, actually, Mm -hmm. because I didn't have anybody to cite. And I thought, like, this is something people need to know about. And this is something I can do.
0: So let's talk about some of the things that you uh, found. But before that, I also I want to just pick up on something you said there that no one had really covered this. Why do you think that is? Why is there this huge gap? Because as you've talked about during your time here over the past week, we're talking about what, about 40 million Americans who kind of fall into the kind of category that you're researching. So it's a huge group. And yet it looks as if the academy has, has not captured their lived experience effectively at this point?
1: Well, I think if you go into fields like anthropology and sociology, you'll see more focus on poverty. But in mass communications research, it doesn't exist. And I think the reason we don't see it in media and in our scholarship and in lots of other disciplines is, like, it's a few things. Number one, there's a lot of stigma, right? And a lot of underlying assumptions and ideas that we have about people mm-hmm. that would keep us from... from like wanting to study them. Like a, a lot of my students ask me, did you feel safe? And I'm like, yes, actually, I felt fine. You know, so their stigma is one. I think another thing is that they're very difficult to access. You can't put out a Qualtrics survey or do a public opinions research for people that don't have a, a phone line, you know, so they're difficult to access. I think stigma is is really involved. Um, yeah, I think that's that's the core of it, really
0: and then i guess the other another element of it which i think also plays into newsrooms and conversations that we're having in, in in newsrooms is that the experiences of many people doing this research is so detached from the people that they're working with that it is potentially difficult for them to be able to understand and appreciate what those communities are going
1: through yes and i think that's where ethnography comes in as a really good tool for like a really good methodology for engaging with people because you know, when you write interview questions, you have to have preconceived notions of what people would want to think about or talk about or say. And so you're already kind of directing the research. But when you start, when you immerse yourself with a group of people and just observe what they're doing and write down every detail you can think of every day, something else starts to emerge, like a broader sentiment. And over time, that directs the way that you write interview questions and the way that you interpret what people are saying. And, and you can glean like a a deeper sense of their, you know, the way they make meaning out of the world.
0: And so tell us a little bit about some of the conclusions that you've managed to derive from your research through the time that you've spent with these communities.
1: Yes, so I have two communities that I've been studying for over three years. And one is um, a very isolated Appalachian community that's deeply impoverished. um, And the other is an urban, unhoused community that's very diverse in a mid-sized Midwestern city. And to talk about some things that I've seen that apply to both of those communities. You know, one is a kind of radical disengagement where the social alienation that these people have experienced in their personal institutional reactions with the representatives of government that are part of their lives, like street level bureaucrats, like the criminal justice system, and social workers, have shaped the way that they make meaning out of the world. And I found that they really try to like, and this is talking in the abstract, but we could get down to the super concrete, but like, they they reconcile their deprivation by adopting you know, a different set of thinking and practices that alter the way that they make meaning out of the world. And- So can, and,
0: can you give us an example of, of that? How does that, of how that manifests itself?
1: Okay, well, yeah, so, um, so let's talk about this idea that they understand the police as government, right? So what I found over time is that when they would talk about government in conversation or I would ask them very, you know, broad questions like, do you think the government treat people equally? They never talked about town halls or previous or upcoming elections or anything like that. They would always talk about the criminal justice system like court and probation officers and cops, sometimes social workers in the context of the criminal justice system. And I also figured out over time that in both communities, none of the participants could name a local official or a state representative, but they all knew at least one, if not many, names of police, including some of the children um, in the communities where they live and had, you know, elaborate, almost like political opinions about each one and their position of power and how they wield that.
0: And so... That, that's one of the things that you, you you found in terms of that relationship with with government um what about um we're also curious about some of the, th- the things um in terms of the media these con- these groups um consume um and it, and also how they feel about the way in which they are portrayed by the media as well
1: well the truth is you know with the, for instance, the rural, working, and, and, and middle class, they perceive themselves as, as being treated disparagingly. But a lot of times, this po- both populations that I study assume themselves to be invisible, and a lot of their distrust in government, you know, crosses over into their distrust of news media. And I think a lot of times, you know, like what's going on in the media or what they see on the news doesn't match their lived experience. Like who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. And things that they care about, their critical information needs aren't being met, and so they just feel like it doesn't matter to them what the news says because it's not made for them, and so it's easier to think that, you know, it's not true.
0: So, what are the implications for, from your research, for kind of a range of different audiences, the media being one, but of course, this also has implications, I think, for. Uh, Politics. Anyone interested in in, in civics, but also a wide variety of other organizations as well?
1: Yeah, so I think the important thing to understand about um, how they understand the police as frontline representatives of government, that means that political communication for them, you know, is relegated to interpersonal interactions with street-level bureaucrats, like police officers and social workers, and that they have, there's a lot of violence, there's a lot of negative, you know, lived experiences. I have a lot of people that are living in cycles of incarceration. So a lot of my field work takes me to jails all the time. Um, And so what that does is it creates a sentiment that like, you know, if the government doesn't care about us, then we don't care about it either. And it's kind of almost like a face saving and like dignified thing to do to withdraw from political life. One, because you don't think democracy is real or that you're being treated equally. And even when I ask them, you know, do you think the government treats people equally? Like somebody told me, you know, you can't tell me that society thinks people are equal or treats people fairly when when child molesters with lawyers are doing less time in jail than those of us, you know, with drug charges and public defenders. And you, you hear a lot about that kind of thing and so, it makes sense some of the radi- some of the the deep political and civic disengagement makes sense both from their disparagement that they receive in society and then their negative institutional interactions and that what that means for us as political communication scholars because we've never conceptualized it that way it means that literally millions of people that are not in town halls, getting interviewed, that are not voting, that are not represented on TV, are completely invisible in our scholarship, even though they are arguably the largest, most diverse, marginalized population in the United States. And so as scholars, like, that's something that's really critical. And when we think about community infrastructure, like in politics, you know, thinking about how those things are shaping the everyday life experiences of people and, and causing millions of people to abdicate their political voice and some of their reactions to the things that that they go through kind of in, in their isolation it kind of reshapes their value system so what I found is that amongst some people in the population you know fighting police for instance, is is justified in some cases and heroic considered heroic in others and it's not because these people are unethical. It's just that they've been pushed to the margins in isolation so far that these values that they've adopted as a way to protect their dignity and their sense of solidarity in their group. Um, so, so if you think about that in terms of like, you know, community architecture and services that are available to each other, like police interactions and the kind of policies and attitudes that could come into place to like increase community trust but also like nonprofit organizational structure, like there are many like political and civic implications. But then in terms of news implications, one thing that I found when watching television with participants watching local news is that things are are typically framed from the top down. I'm not even talking about reinventing news here. I'm talking about 20 second frame shifts, right? So when when I say top down, I mean, you know, when you see um, information about healthcare, it's usually framed in terms of like healthcare legislation. Right. Or if you see things about in, in, in Appalachia, like the opioid epidemic, it's like arrests and deaths and everything. I think that if, if you turn that around and think about the critical information needs of these communities that are actually becoming more and more populous, especially in rural environments. And instead of just talking about health care in terms of legislation, spend 10 seconds to put on the, str- the screen, you know, a list of places that people without insurance could could go to. Or instead of just talking about incarceration rates, like talk about um, about the impact of incarceration on local poverty and on on specific people in the community who are really suffering as a result, like grandparents raising an entire generation of people, and you know. The same thing goes with like something that would take more than a 20 second frame shift. It's this thing that rural communities budgets are usually deeply reliant on, on criminal justice revenue to keep the lights on on Main Street. And if they don't find a certain amount of criminals, you know, they're gonna have budget deficit problems. And, and most communities where this is happening have no idea. And that's not a big investigative piece. We're talking about like a few hours of work for a journalist who knows where to look to look at the city budget and see what it means.
0: So so you've outlined some things there that people can, can do differently, but uh, you know, do you have a kind of wider manifesto of things that you'd like to see, um, news organizations, scholars, and indeed um, different branches of government doing differently in terms of their relationship with these communities?
1: Oh my gosh, that is, there's like, oh, how much time do you have, <laughs> right? And More so, than 20 seconds. But yeah, yeah, like, um, so if you think about community and civic infrastructure in terms of like different kinds of reforms that we can make, right? Just some attitudinal changes in the way that people are treated in their interactions that are kind of institutionally based. And, and just like here, journalists are taught, are, are taught in actually in SOJC, you know, to engage people with dignity and respect. And it's just part of the curriculum. I think it could be part of the curriculum at the police academy too, right? And then there's all kinds of other infrastructural issues like civic safety nets that capture people and communication ecologies that could increase well-being like science communication and health communication. I found that actually flyers are especially effective amongst unhoused people for their health communication needs. And because of the news desert problem with print media, like local news is really important for rural communities. And so, you know, a adjusting to meet some of their critical information needs is important but then as scholars you know this is a whole layer of communication ecologies that has gone completely ignored and so there's so much we still don't know I've only done a rural and urban community but we have big undocumented migrant communities there are just so many different aspects of this that we could tackle But in terms of other ways that communication ecologies are reproducing poverty, have you ever seen a SNAP application for nutrition benefits? It's It's insane. It's huge. And it has a lot of threatening language, like if you do this wrong, you could go to prison, you know, if you fill this out the wrong way. And it requires a lot of supporting documents, things that a lot of times impoverished people don't actually have. And the same with a probation agreement. When people in these communities are trapped in cycles of incarceration, the documents that they have to read are so hard that I have a PhD and I can barely understand and I really have to think about it. And I'm a big social theory nerd, you Mm -hmm. know? And, um, I think that those communication methods have such legalistic language that people are at a disadvantage because they don't understand what's happening to them. And that's not to say that they're ignorant because people who have actually been trapped in those cycles for a long time have become legal experts and have, have actually explained all kinds of weird, you know, twists and turns of bureaucratic labyrinths of social services and actually explained a probation agreement to me and what it says, even though it's really complicated. But yeah, I think in that way, in one way, yes, that kind of communication is reproducing poverty. But in another way, we are underestimating, you know, the strength and goodwill and intelligence of entire class of social people. Like if we wanted to get really good political advice on what to do with like criminal justice reform or how to administer social services and nonprofit stuff, they are experts and they know exactly what's wrong with the system and they know exactly what would make it better, you know, but they just they don't have a platform in the public sphere to be heard. And I think that's what we can do as communication scholars and professionals is like, make a space to be a conduit for the public sphere so that this very large population of people in the U.S. can start having a say in how how we govern.
0: So it's so there's lots of different facets there from kind of being that that conduit training attitudinal shifts uh, and and so forth. I'm also curious about how and where this potentially falls into advocacy, which for some would be would be seen as kind of like a dirty word if you're a scholar or or a journalist I don't share that 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 view and I know that many of our students do not either but I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about about um how you feel about about that the a word
1: yeah well I do not think that you know I don't think that you know being a professional scholar or journalist and being an advocate are mutually exclusive things I do shy away from people like with a really deep ideological and like orientation. I, I'm deeply committed to science and I deeply feel that if we can't say exactly what's wrong in communities from sides of structure and agency, we can't help make it better. So trying to be as objective as you can in reporting and trying to like get all aspects of a story together so that we can have a meaningful dialogue is important, but that said. You know, I'm a participatory action researcher, right? And what that means is that, like, I'm an advocate in cross cutting network for the people that I study, and to make this not some kind of You know you think about like colonization and like extractive economies and just taking their knowledge resources to boost my career you can't really do that like if you want things to get better you have to have a commitment to the communities you serve and that is like the origin philosophy of journalism as the fourth estate and why we have constitutional protection right is because we function as a check on power and on behalf of the people and we do that through communication and so advocacy is built in to our profession and it's our like requirement and responsibility to the nation. And so going back to participatory action research, I can't put the needs of like my study in front of the needs of the people. So it's really important that when something happens for them, I try to help them find the resources that they need. And I think part of that too is, is when you function as a conduit to the public sphere, you want to center, you know, their voices in your work and exactly what they say and how they feel and spend the time to listen and understand and get to know that because we don't need to like take over what they're trying to say the point is to give them a place to say it and so so yeah and then
0: and and that approach presumably is one that engenders trust because you're not just kind of parachuting in and having an exploitative transactional relationship with these communities you're in it for the long run as you said you've been working with them for for three years I know you continue to be you continue to be invested with those communities and supporting with supporting them in day-to-day activities that are often completely separate from from what you're doing um as a scholar
1: Yes, you're making a really valid point. But as, a, as in terms of advocacy, not only do I write and try to center their voice, I'm actually, I function as a taxi to social workers. I've been, you know, testified in sentencing hearings and as a character witness and everything. I blanket drops, like helping build tiny homes. I don't know. Like, it's just kind of a jack of all trades because you are a cross-cutting network and a conduit. Not only, not everybody's going to have the privilege of being able to spend that time I'm really lucky as a scholar because it's my research. I get a lot of leeway, but I try to do what I can. But in terms of institutional trust, you're making a that's a it's a massive thing because when people feel like they matter and they're visible, it makes an immediate impact on their behavior, like in interactions with the rest of society and the institutions with which they engage. And I've seen it empirically over and over again. And so, Even before anything I publish comes out, just the fact that I'm there asking questions makes a difference because they see that these institutions like the university I work for or, you know, journalistic publications that have gotten involved as a result of that work like care and they feel included. And when people feel like they're being treated equally or like they have a voice, it changes their interaction dynamic with institutions. And I think it could really increase civic and political engagement if we were really able to cultivate that trust.
0: And tell us a little bit about how your a, approach um, to this this world and also the, the findings from your research has kind of um, been received by students and faculty here. You're coming to the end of your time uh, with us um, on, on campus this week. I'm just really curious to kind of see what your reaction has the reaction to your work has been.
1: well. I got really, really lucky, and I'm in a very open-minded department. You know, it's not a cultural studies place, and um, I'm the only ethnographer. We do have some really amazing journalists using ethnographic methods, but I'm the only long-term participant observer. But what that means in reality is that when I would go to teach or go to classes, I would be dressed like an unhoused person and, you know, without makeup on, And like just kind of marching in and out of the department like that. And as I built relationship with with the unhoused community, they would come and visit me in the institution. And we were always treated, you know, by administration and faculty with kindness and respect. And, you know, nobody ever gave me any trouble with it. But I did notice I started prompting the students, right, because before I started telling my students in classes that, you know, this is the kind of research I do and you might find me out on the street, you know, because I've had a student and before that happened, walk up and be like, Miss Danny. And I'm like, it's okay, kiddo. I got a home. This is my work, but you can come say hi because these are my friends, you know, and it was cool. I was telling them that so that wouldn't be alarmed when they walked out of the university and saw me in a completely different context, but it opened up this whole door of the students being really interested in what I was doing and gave me a a chance to mentor students and and giving them concrete experience with working with marginalized communities and offering them like a deeply different perspective on the inside that they told me over time, changed the way that they interacted with the unhoused community in our city. And um, it was really powerful and it, it really made me feel good. Like there are so many ways in which we as scholars and professionals can like, you know, serve a greater purpose, you know, through advocacy and through the writing that we do and through our mentorship and our research. So we have so many avenues in which we can, like, really take the privilege that we have and use it for the greater good.
0: Yeah. And then in terms of future avenues for you, what's what's next when you go back to the Midwest?
1: Well, I'm on the job market. That's so exciting. Um <laughs> <laughs> No, but I uh, I have a book that I'm working on right now that explores some of the theoretical um, and practical things that I'm I've learned that I that's going to be written for the public and political communication scholars and, and journalists in the field um, and I'm really excited to talk about what I found in these communities and how we can apply it to people living in poverty in general and open up that field and then because I've been in it so long. I have way more data than I can actually use for that book. So once that's over, you know, like I'm going to write a second book and at the center of it will actually be these bureaucratic labyrinths I was talking to you about and the criminal justice system and their communication networks and the conflicting narratives between these institutions and the poor people that are trapped inside of them to kind of paint a deeper picture of what like generations of exploitation and subjugation ha- have done to to these communities so um yeah it's weird how your work almost drives itself the deeper in you get so that's my trajectory for the next five years probably
0: excellent that's great well we'll look forward to following that trajectory danny and we thank you again for the, all your time and insights that you've shared with students and faculty um, here at the university of oregon over the last week
1: Oh, I've had a wonderful time. These kids are going to do great things, man. I love your curriculum. Great, great students, wonderful faculty. It's been an honor to be your guest.
0: Thank you. Well, um, don't forget you can find uh, more materials from Danny's visit here at the University of Oregon, including a public lecture talking more about her work, as well as other lectures and discussions with researchers and media professionals wherever you found our podcast. In the meantime, it just remains for me to thank once again our guest today, Danny Parker.